Hello everyone, this is the BPP University Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. So my name is Irene Yvesathiu and I'm a current LLMLPC student at BPP University. I am joined by my lovely co-host Mahini Katecha, who will introduce herself now. Hi Irene, thank you for the introduction. My name is Mahini Katecha. I'm a current LPC student at BPP's Holborn base. Very excited to get started on this episode and thank you to our guest Daniel who's joining us today. So this is our second episode on LGBTQ+. Make sure to listen to part one with Rachel Reese. Uh, for this episode, we're thrilled to have with us Daniel Winterfeld. Daniel has been doing remarkable work for the LGBTQ community. He's a founder of Interlaw Diversity Forum, which he will talk to us about later on. And he's also a partner in global capital markets at international law firm Reed Smith. Other than that, he was also appointed Honorary Queen's Counsel in 2019, and he also has two beautiful Dachshunds to keep him company to, in his free time. So Daniel, if you could briefly introduce yourself. Yes, hi. So um, I'm uh, Daniel Winterfeld. Um, you guys already gave me a little bit of, of an introduction, but um, it's, um, yeah, it's great to be here um, to speak to you guys for LGBT plus history month. I think it's really important um, that we, you know, observe and look at a range of people um, during this period. Um, so I'm, I'm honored you guys have invited me to come and speak. And I think what's great about my work is I've done LGBT plus work, but then I've also, um, you know, with an interlaw over time, we started that way 13 years ago, actually 13 years ago to the month, <laughs> we started interlaw as an LGBT plus interorganizational network. And we've expanded our work out to be intersectional. Um, we started focusing on allies from the beginning. We really started focusing on intersectionality from 2012. We now have a race ethnicity network, which is the same size as our LGBT plus network. We have a disability network, a women's network, and we have an initiative on uh, social mobility. Um, so we've really expanded out over the past 13 years, and I'm really proud of that. And I think that's been great to um, not only support the LGBT plus community and be an ally inside the community, but also support others outside and take the lessons we've learned with an interlaw and use it to support others in their journey. Yeah, so the work you're doing at Interlaw is amazing. Uh, and I guess for this section, could you tell us more about your background and your journey in discovering your self-identity throughout the years? Yeah, so I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm originally American. I'm now also British, so I've got both passports. Um, I, um, I grew up in a really conservative place, so Cincinnati was, you know, Republicans. I grew up with people supporting Ronald Reagan. Um, for those of us who know history, not a, not, not a friend of the LGBT plus community, not supportive. It was, you know, the middle, it was the beginning of the HIV and AIDS crisis and the government was completely silent and didn't support at all. Um, and it was quite a dark period, I think, in American history and not a great time to be growing up as someone who was young and Jewish but also gay. So three of my four grandparents um, left Europe and came to America just before the Holocaust in World War II. So a big portion of my family were, were killed during that period. Um, and my grandparents came with you know, no education, no money, didn't speak English um, and started their lives over. Um, you know, and my one grandfather you know, sold pots and pans door to door um, from the back of his car 
to put my mom and my aunt through school and my father's father worked on the train schedule in the local train station. So my parents are the first generation in their family to go to university. Um, they, um, you know, were, were very, were very lucky. And, you know, my mother went to the equivalent in the U.S. of a state selective school. So I grew up with, um, a, you know, a Jewish background. Um, I grew up with people who were, you know, the lessons we learned from the Holocaust was, you know, you should always be prepared to leave and flee your country and may turn on you. You should have a passport next to your bed. You should have portable wealth. Um, and I was kind of the mentality a lot was, you know, not only can the worst thing you imagine happen to you, something even worse can happen to you. So it wasn't exactly a right, bright and cheery upbringing. And then you layer on top of that feeling, um, knowing that you have the secret, knowing that you're gay, knowing that if people knew that it might put you not just create problems for you, but it could put you in physical danger. I didn't feel safe. So I didn't actually end up coming out until I was 20 years old. So I came out in university. Um, I went to university in St. Louis. And again, I kind of thought I was going to a big city, but I landed in basically Cincinnati without hills and an arch. Um, they're very similar cities. They're both on rivers. Um, they're both relatively conservative. Um, and I went to an amazing university at Washington University in St. Louis. So I received a great education and had great people around me. But as far as being in an environment that was more liberal or more open, that was not the case. But I went abroad my junior year. I went to the University of Salamanca um, and I took courses for a year in Spanish. I was taking, um, I think nine classes in five different facultades, they call them, or I don't know, I guess faculties you say, but that's not really the right word in English. Um, but you know, there was basically like within the university, there was a psychology, um, I guess they were really departments. So there was psychology, there was language. So I was kind of taking a whole range of classes in Spanish. And I think being, uh, and I took actually a psychology of sexuality, um, which, and I had the most amazing professor who, you know, was very open and very liberal and you know would would teach us he was very interested in sex and sexual orientation and we covered that in our classes and we would go have coffees with him on our breaks and he would say oh you know if you you know we're all so similar and here's how biology works and here's how you know um sex works and development so we would study the differences between the sexes the differences in development at the genetic level but also at the you know, developmental and the, and the ambient level, like within the womb. It was very, very fascinating, but it was also a very freeing environment because you're, li you're living in Spain, you're 20 years old, you don't know anyone, um, you know, everyone was Catholic and I'm Jewish. So I didn't really feel you escape that pressure. There's no, the societal pressure is really different because no one knows you, no one knows your family, all those pressures just disappear. So for me, it was the first time that I felt like it was really easy just to be open about who I was. And I kind of slowly came out to my close friends when I was there. And um, so it was a long process for me. Um, and it definitely was kind of a, a freedom and a weight lifted off my shoulders. And then after coming back from Spain, I went back to St. Louis. Um, I was out on campus then my senior year. Um, and you know there were 12 of us. So out of a campus of thousands of students, there were 12 out students. So again, you know that was 1993 when I returned back from my year abroad. So um, obviously a long time ago and a, and a different time, but you know, it was very difficult to go back to university and go back to St. Louis for that last year. And so then I went on to law school and I said, I'm not gonna get it wrong this time, I'm going to New York. So I only applied to law school in New York or Boston and I got into Fordham and I went to Fordham and went to New York. And that was very transformative to be in New York City 
in the 90s. And I think, you know, what that was like is pretty well documented in TV shows like Sex and the City. I mean, what you saw was really realistic. I mean, we would go out at night and there'd be, you know, be like, oh, you can't come into the, you know, this restaurant tonight, they're filming for Sex in the City. And like, oh, another place rude by Sex in the City. Because the minute one of our favorite places showed up on that show, suddenly there'd be lines out the door, you couldn't get in, you know, Magnolia Bakery was on it. And suddenly there'd be lines, you know, two blocks down the street to get a cupcake. So we had to stay one step ahead of the show. But it was, you know, really, that's what New York was like. It was very vibrant, very open. And I felt like I found my spiritual home, because really half a man Manhattan was Jewish, the other half was gay. Um, so <laughs> I was, you know, really, really at home for the first time in my life during that time in New York, during law school and my first two years of my career. Yeah, and I guess, um, so in terms of those pressures that you mentioned, um, I guess it kind of comes down to having a role model uh, to look up to. Um, so I wanted to ask if you had any role models while going through um, your own journey of self-identity uh, and I guess navigating the legal industry. No, well, I think that was really the problem when I was younger is there weren't any. I mean, almost nobody was out. The only people we knew that, that were gay was, you know, everyone knew um, Freddie Mercury was gay and he, you know, he passed away um, from HIV and AIDS and that was sad. And, and we knew that Elton John was gay. Um, but, you know, I grew up and, and worked in places, you know, in the nineties, it was like, even when Versace was killed, I was doing an internship at Shearing Plow Pharmaceuticals in New Jersey. And I remember him being killed. And of course, part of that story was, you know, the fact that he was gay and, you know, how this, how this tragedy unfolded. And literally, I remember being at Shearing Plow, one of the secretaries saying, oh my God, Versace was gay. And I'm thinking, you know, if you don't think Gianni Versace was gay, I mean, who is, right? I mean, so to be honest, I had no role models. And, you know, what's really interesting is now we're in this very open time, supposedly. However, I feel like when I look at LGBT plus media, when I look at portrayals on Netflix or on television, I feel like there is such a narrow scope of the community celebrated. I still think to myself, if I was in Cincinnati now, I would still have to search really hard to find role models that I related to and identified with. You know, I love RuPaul's Drag Race. I love me a drag queen. I have some very, very close friends who are, but you know, that isn't really an ambition for me. And that's not, you know, my life. That's not something I would relate to as a role model. And of course you can look up to and admire anyone, but to see people who are quote unquote like you, it's very challenging now. You know, people put together books of like, here's a list of role models. And it's so driven as well now by social media that it's like everybody's young, everybody's cut from a certain cloth. And if you don't have like a social media presence, it's like you're invisible in the community to the point where, you know, I saw someone, a meme floating around that everyone was cutting and repasting all over the internet, that the reason why people don't know people in their 40s is because they all were killed by HIV and AIDS. And it's like, that's the wrong generation. <laughs> I'm in my 40s. Like, hi, we're alive and well. We're actually the generation where if we were infected, we actually eventually were able to get treatment and, you know, have a, a normal lifespan. So we're not invis we're invisible to people because people my age tend not to be as active on Instagram. They're not courting that kind of attention, but it doesn't mean they're not around. And I find the community often isn't very accepting of people who are older. I remember coming here and the youth obsession in the UK was stark to me because I moved to the United Kingdom in 2000. And I, so in 2000, I was 
28. And I remember literally turning 30 and like going out in Soho in a gay bar and people saying, oh my God, you're 30 year old and literally spinning and walking away. So it's like, if I was old at 30, you know, now I'm 48. So it's really interesting that just because people aren't visible and because they're being ignored by the community, now you've got people in the community making up conspiracy theories that they're all dead when they're actually just being ignored and disrespected <laughs> by the community, right? So it actually is, um, people need to learn that the world is bigger than Instagram, the world is bigger than social media, and we need to work when we talk about role models and talk about LGBT plus inclusion, you know, I think we need to do a better job. And as I said, you know, I kind of look at Netflix and I'm like, really? So what do we get? We have RuPaul's Drag Race, we have Pose. Um, you know, I feel like everything on there is, is, it's a very narrow part of our community. And every one of those slices are incredibly important, right? Like the story of Pose is an incredibly important story. And it's important to show trans women of color and tell that story. RuPaul's Drag Race to me is a transformative, really important global phenomena that has changed our space. But to think that that's it and you're done um, is just ignoring, you know, this huge rainbow of people we have. And, you know, if you had to say kind of like, you know, who would I look up to now? I still think, like I said, I would really struggle as a young person if I opened Attitude Magazine, if I opened Netflix to find people who I think felt like me, you know? And I guess maybe, you know, I'm a lawyer and, you know, it's interesting because I didn't watch Will and Grace when it was on originally because I was in college and I was studying all the time. But, um, you know, that's probably the closest depiction, but that's now like, you know, the original version of that's like 20 years old, right? So it's like, you know, what's on now where I turn on and see characters, it's hard. So I do think that that role model and that visibility is so important. I didn't have it at all when I was younger. So when I started my career as well as a professional, there was no one out when I moved to London. There were no role models. I didn't know people um, who were senior. I only really met them when I started doing this work in 2008. So my first eight years were incredibly isolating and I didn't feel like I had a career. I just felt like I had a job. So I would look up and the people who were LGBT plus were not out. So I thought, okay, well, I'm already out. And once the genie's out of the bottle, you know, it's kind of hard to put it back in. So I thought, well, I guess I'm never gonna be a partner at a law firm. So this is really a job, not a career. Um, and it was, uh, you then approach things in a really different way and have a different mentality. And I'm kind of sad for my younger self to feel that way. You know, I, I did have some great people around me and some great role models, but I just didn't have LGBT plus ones. Um, I do think that's changed a bit, but I still think you look up within the profession and there aren't enough um, role models out there and there aren't enough different diverse people being celebrated and we don't see enough of our community. And often within organizations, there's kind of one person and, you know, I call them the unicorns and, you know, the unicorns aren't enough. It's not enough for there to be one person. Like we've been doing this work in Interlaw for 13 years. So, I mean, how many years can you say we're an inclusive employer and we're fantastic and still just have one visible person? Like we all need to be saying, where's everyone else? And I, you know, the unicorns need to look around and say, I don't wanna be the only unicorn. I wanna see more people and not necessarily just like you, but from within the wide community. Um, so I guess continuing on from uh, the question on role models for students who, want or who are looking for a role model and maybe turning for example to Netflix um, or other mediums how would you advise them to find a role model yeah I would definitely say I think social media is not the place to go 
um, nor do I think television is. I mean, I, I unfortunately, nor are magazines. I just think mainstream media has a really narrow view of what LGBT plus is. I think a lot of people making these decisions, I don't know if they are LGBT plus or if it's kind of allies getting it so wrong. But again, the representation to me is very stereotypical and quite narrow. Um, I think if you're young and you're professional and you wanna have role models, the best thing to do is to um, read books, um, you know, come to Interlaw Diversity Forum events because we do our LGBT plus events and we certainly platform a whole range of professionals inside the legal sector, not always lawyers. We also have business services people, but we know definitely you can meet real people. And that's sort of like my criteria for who I put into events. It's people who I meet who inspire me, who I know. It's very rare that someone comes and speaks at Interlaw that I don't know. So for me, that's like my vehicle to create role models, present role models and put them forward, right? And we have a project as well called the Purple Rain Project. Um, it doesn't have enough of a home online, but we have a podcast as well with a lot of LGBT plus and ally role models, um, people who are like my personal heroes who I really admire. I mean, everyone should know who Mia Yamamoto is. Um, there's amazing women like Olivette Cole Wilson, um, who is the um, who is uh, one of the co-founders of Stonewall, who's a black woman and a lesbian. Um, so she helped found Stonewall alongside people like Ian McKellen, Lisa Power, Michael Cashman, who are more known. But to me, everybody should know who Olivette is. Um, and you know, she works. Um, uh, she is a, an actress and a counselor, and she works with Bernardos to do LGBT plus inclusive adoption. Um, so she's like a hero because she's been doing this for decades and decades and decades, and everyone should know who she is. Um, and as I said, um, Mia Yamamoto is another hero of mine. She's in LA. She's a Japanese American woman who was born in an internment camp in Arizona during World War II. So um, I don't. People talk a lot about the um, concentration camps and the Holocaust, but in America, they actually put Japanese Americans into internment camps because they were viewed as traitors because Japan was an enemy, right? So she was born in one of those camps. Her father was a civil rights lawyer and an activist in the camp fighting for the rights of Japanese Americans. And she followed in his footsteps, became a lawyer. Um, and then when, um, continued to work for the ACLU and do civil rights work as a criminal lawyer. And um, in her 60s, decided to transition from a man to a woman and did so publicly in the local legal press in LA and you know, kind of wrote to all her clients. It's an amazing story, but Mia is a personal hero of mine. She's now in her 70s, married to an amazing woman um, who's um, a, a researcher. Um, she plays guitar, electric guitar in a rock band. Um, we all need to grow up and be Mia Yamamoto. I mean, I just love her. So um, look, I think they're around you, but I do think you have to dig and you have to look. There are great people like on the trans side, senior people like uh, Christine Burns, um, Professor Stephen Whittle is an amazing law professor who's one of the first trans men in the United Kingdom um, and who was on television in the 80s and has just been, and he's one of the nicest people in the world. Um, I love him. He's great. But I think, you know, read books, get out there and kind of get outside of the memes and the social media and start really reading real books and trying to go to real events and see real people and, you know, not the same events with the same people over and over again. I really do think that like, it's like, you know, that dragon image of the dragon eating its own tail. We're starting to become that in the LGBT plus space where it's like, the same five people. Like when people say like, we want to represent LGBT plus trans people of color or like LGBT plus 
um, uh, sorry, people of color, um, it's always the same two people, right? And so, you know, you can't ever have, you know, the movement be two people. Um, and, you know, if you're also an activist, I think you shouldn't be the center of everything you do. You should be supporting others and platforming others and creating space to bring people along and bring people with you and look up and admire the people who have come before you. Yeah, and I guess um, it's also kind of a matter of self-discovery, even if it's you finding a role model. And I guess I wanted to ask you a bit on intersectionality, uh, just briefly, if you could explain what that is uh, for our listeners um, before we move on with Mahini's questions on Interlo Diversity Forum. Great, thank you, thank you, Rini. Yeah. Well, look, intersectionality, as I said, is really key and important to what we do at the Interlo Diversity Forum. The concept was originally um, coined um, by Kimberly Crenshaw who's a professor at Columbia University. She's still active in the space. Um, but she, her theory was based on the fact that a lot of feminism seemed to focus on the experiences of white women. And she said, as an African-American woman, we experience things differently. There's an extra layer to our experiences because of race um, that needs to be taken into account when you look at feminism, right? And um, that was a, you know, a revolutionary concept at the time. And people have taken intersectionality and used it to really talk about not just the intersection in that case of gender and race, but looking across the board, when you look across the protected characteristics and you think about disability, gender identity, sexual orientation, uh, you know, et cetera, um, social mobility, I think you have to look at people as complex wholes. We're all, we're all made up of many different things. And I've talked about different elements of my identity, but the more you do that, the more you get people to understand the world in a more complex way. Um, I think it's really important, you know, now there is a huge focus, rightly so, again, you know, last year with the tragic death of George Floyd and the reignition of the global civil rights movement in the wake of that and Black Lives Matter, it is really, really important and it's great that we're doing that, but when we do that, we have to remember intersectionality because even if you do a program to support Black talent, um, you inside, inside the column of Black talent you will have women, you have people with disabilities, you will have LGBT plus. And if you ignore that and you're not cognizant of that, then you're actually doing an effective program for black talent. And you may often be marginalizing or excluding people while you're trying to do things and move forward. So I just feel like it's really important that everything we do, and you know, interestingly, for example, you look at the Sainsbury's uh, Christmas commercial, which caused such a controversy where you see this extended family of 25, you know, uh, 25 plus a, a black family. And, you know, uh, my friend, Samantha Ranka, who's a disability activist said, you know, I watch these commercials and I'm just waiting for the black guy to roll into the wheelchair and he never comes, you know? And I'm, you know, and I'm watching that thinking, well, why couldn't one of those members of the family, there were so many different aspects of that family, how powerful would it have been to have had a black lesbian couple as part of that family and just had that be part of that montage. So I look at those things as, you know, important things to move the conversation forward, but also lost opportunities. So I think if we want to be, you know, effective and, and relate, whether it's in our personal lives with our friends, whether it's, at, you know, at, at school with your colleagues, when you become a professional in your working space, I think we have to, you know, approach things with that lens. And then my other little caveat on top of that, and a lot of what I think goes wrong in today's world, is we do know trends from research, right? So if you look at the LGBT plus space, for example, 
yes, statistically speaking, trans and non-binary people have more challenges than the average person. And then when you add on the intersectionality of people of color on top of that, you get to an intersection of people that have more challenges. But you can never take that when you meet an individual and think that you know their journey or their experiences. So people walk around a lot now and say, oh, well, white gay men are privileged. And you know, it's kind of like step to the side and we engage in this suffering Olympics when the reality is no one knows my journey unless they know me and they've learned it. So to kind of dismiss someone and dismiss their challenges or their struggles or their contributions because of their identity when you don't know them is really the essence of discrimination and, and what we're fighting against and what we're fighting for. It's really important to remember that there may be trans women of color who are some of the most privileged around us. It's statistically unlikely, but it may be true. So we have to remember that you know when we over rely on identity politics, it can lead us down paths that can be quite problematic. So it's really important to remember that although we know trends and although we know statistics, we need to get to know people on an individual level, whether they're our friends, our colleagues, not make assumptions, not think we know people until we know them. The only way to get to know someone is to get them to know them as a person. And you know, with that intersectionality too, you don't know someone's full identity until again, you have that opportunity to create a safe space and they reveal that to you. You know, you could be a straight white elite educated man, but you could have an invisible disability that people can't see. You maybe you've been through trauma and suffered abuse in your history. So there's a really important element, I think, of, of respecting individuals that sometimes people get lost in kind of the good fight. And you know, I talked about kind of the suffering Olympics, and I think nobody wins. We don't want to get into battles between different categories or intersections of protected classes to say who has it the best and who has it the worst. What we want to be doing is uplifting and supporting each other. Um, and that's, I think, our, our obligation, whether we're, um, you know, no matter, you know, kind of where we rank in these, in these rankings, our obligation is to support those who are, you know, less, less advantaged than us or, or more disadvantaged. And, you know, there's two struggles. There's the struggle to, to survive, and those struggles are really important, and we spend a lot of time talking about those, but there's also the struggles to thrive. And those are equally important. Making sure that you tend in the LGBT plus community to the most vulnerable is critical, but that doesn't mean that you don't also have bandwidth and time to make sure that we are, you know, supporting and developing the, the leaders of tomorrow and making sure people are getting to the tops of professions so we have those role models and so they are visible and so there is more clear visibility. So I think both those things have to happen together and we all have an obligation to think about our roles in both. It's not mutually exclusive choice. You can support people on both those journeys at the same time, but they're very different things in very different ways and they're really important. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. And thank you for sort of explaining the importance of getting to know people on an individual level and sort of hand in hand with that. Thank you for sharing your journey with us from, you know, America and Spain and hearing all about that was really interesting. So I know we've spoken kind of briefly about interlaw, but just for those listeners who don't actually know what interlaw is, would you be able to summarize your mission there and the advocacy that you're doing in that space to our listeners, if that's all right? Yeah, absolutely. So Interlaw started, as I said, 13 years ago. So it's our, it's our, uh, our, our bat mitzvah or our bar mitzvah <laughs> um, or b'nai mitzvah, depending on how you want to view it. Um, so we were very lucky to have um, 
to start as an LGBT plus interorganizational network. And what and the reason why I started it is because at that time there were only three law firms in the city of London that had LGBT plus networks. And those same three firms were the only three firms that monitored sexual orientation. So firms would ask every protected characteristic, but ignore that question. So um, I wanted to create a space if there weren't networks and people didn't have places to go to, I wanted to create a space where people could come. So we started as a monthly, a monthly meeting, a place to come together every month to bring people together, to network, to meet each other, to create those mentoring relationships, to create client development opportunities. Um, and we, um, I started right away getting involved in, um, so we're really inclusive from the beginning. So we had both in-house lawyers, um, and lawyers at law firms. We had lawyers and non-lawyers. So shouldn't say non-lawyers, so business services. So anyone who worked within the legal sector, we let people self-define that. So if you were a journalist, if you were a recruiter and you felt you were part of the legal sector, you were welcome. Um, we also, from the very beginning, allowed people to come who were supporters, who were LGBT plus, but not um, in the legal sector. So we had people, you know, kind of from banking or other parts of the city who would come and join. And we had a list from the very beginning of supporters. I knew looking up that when we started the Intra Diversity Forum, um, as I said, there were no LGBT plus senior people. So I knew if we were going to change the world, the people in power who were making those decisions were going to be allies. They were not going to be us. So I knew from the beginning we needed that um, list of supporters and we needed the engagement of allies, but also we knew that people who weren't out might be comfortable joining as a supporter. And later we saw people over time moving from the supporters list to the members list. So we were doing allyship by instinct 13 years ago. Um, no one's used the word ally or talked about allies. That's more of like something in the past 10 years um, or maybe even less than that. So we did it automatically. Over time, we started getting involved in doing research. We worked with the Law Society, we worked with the Judicial Appointments Commission. People talk now a lot about how no one wants to talk about race. But let me tell you, in 2008, 2009, 2010, people were running to talk about race. They did not want to say the word gay. LGBT plus made them incredibly uncomfortable. Um, both all the organizations and the government were doing studies on um, on. Uh, gender and on race ethnicity, and they would not touch LGBT plus with a with a barge pole, or at least if they made priorities, that was never a priority. So we came forward and said, we'll work with you, we'll do that research, we'll develop that research. In 2012, we did our own research on career progression in the legal sector, 2012, that's on our website. That updated research is coming out next month because we've now updated it with data from 2018 and 2020 across all strands of DNI and social mobility. That's when we saw the impact of intersectionality and changed our work. And later on, then we launched our additional networks. We now have, as I said, an LGBT plus network, a race and ethnicity network, a disability network, a women's network, and a social mobility initiative. We also have a student initiative, which is being rebranded as Pathways to Success, which is about supporting students, but also people early in their career. We do a virtual internship, and Interlaw now is 8,500 members and supporters from over 800 organizations. Those include 350 plus law firms and over 500 corporates and financial institutions. So we've 
grown exponentially where we're at. I never would have imagined we'd be here 13 years ago. I didn't really set out with a plan, but that's how we've developed and that's what we do. So we, our mission really is to support diverse talent within the legal sector, support existing networks at organizations and support organizations and, and managers within them to develop inclusive DNI programs within the legal sector. Overall goal is to transform the legal sector to create a meritocracy where all talent has the equal opportunity to advance and move forward in the profession. And we're way off from that goal. So we have a lot of work to do. I think in terms of being way off, you're definitely making phenomenal tracks there. And it's really a commendable thing that you're doing. And I think congratulations from just my point of view. And I think everyone that's been involved with it, congratulations and happy birthday slash anniversary for your 13 years. Thank you. Thank you're you so, so much. welcome. And so I think there's a real cognizance there in terms of having an awareness for all the different strands within DNI and how they sort of overlap. So no one person is really one thing. And you've spoken very well on that in terms of coming from your Jewish background and being part of the LGBTQ plus community. So I just wanted to ask a question that I know a lot of our students were having in terms of their LGBTQ plus identity sort of conflicts with their own religion and culture. So what would you say to them if they're trying to reconcile the different communities that form all of their identity and how they can move forward in that respect? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think this is really a challenge right now because what I think is very complicated is there's a lot of people who, when they discuss race and ethnicity and LGBT plus, spend a lot of time talking about white privilege in the LGBT plus space kind of pointing the finger and you know there is an issue and there's always going to be an issue around that however the people who i know who are lgbt plus um who are from um different um race and ethnicity backgrounds particularly when they're people of faith their biggest problems come from their family their community and their church right or their place of worship so those are the three spaces where they often encounter huge challenges and i think what's really important is that you know, and I also think it's very fashionable for people to dismiss religion and dismiss faith. Um, and it's easy to point out examples where things can go wrong or where there's problematic practices, right? But I think what's really important is to be mindful that faith is a fundamental part of who we are. Faith is so important to so many people. So to tell people, well, you know, screw your church or forget about your religion and just be you. And, you know, that doesn't work for people of faith. And it's disrespectful of that intersectionality and those different elements. It's easy to kind of walk into a room and kind of point towards one group and say, well, you guys are the problem and you're awful. When really the real challenge is for the people, you know, look, so I work, I'm a patron with the Albert Kennedy Trust. They work with homeless and at-risk LGBT plus youth. Those numbers go up every year, 30, 40%. And, you know, the vast majority of those are often faith groups, um, often Muslim families, that when they discover their children are LGBT plus, they are expelled from their homes. They are made homeless. I mean, that to me would be probably the biggest problem you have going on. Um, you know, I yes, I believe that there can be racism in the LGBT plus community. It's important we address that. But I think that that's, a, you know, when you don't have a family, when you don't have a roof over your head, when you're worried about where you're getting food or you're in a home, but you're feeling unsafe or unwelcome, or you're having to harbor a secret because you think if people knew that you would become the next statistic to become homeless, these are huge impacts on our mental health and well being. And I think what's really important is the message gets out there. 
that faith is not necessarily bad. You can reconcile your faith with who you are. When you go to the fundamentals of every major religion, they are founded on, you know, love and respect um, and inclusion. And, you know, also have, you know, not judging others. It's not our job to judge. It's God's job. So I think, you know, you look across religions and you can reconcile that faith. So I look at people like Reverend Jean McCauley, who does, you know, as a reverend and as an African, you know, who's openly gay, who's openly um, HIV positive. He's such a huge role model. And he, we've done an event with him in Interlaw where he, you know, came and said, you can be Christian and you can be LGBT plus. God loves everyone. God loves all of you. And I did that event with him last year, I think before things shut down. And um, I had a black African lesbian come to me and say, you know, I've done stuff with Stonewall. I've done stuff with Black Pride. I've been everywhere. But this is the first time someone told me as a black woman who is a lesbian and a person of faith that I can reconcile and be all of those things. And it saddened me that someone had to come to one of our events in the city to have that message come out to them. But I think we need to do a lot more work within our um, LGBT plus community to, to support people of faith, to work with religious leaders, um, to be inclusive and to understand that. So it's a hugely important issue, but I think you have to remember that your self-esteem and your self-worth comes from within, that, um, that you know we're all here to love and, and accept each other and support each other. I think Stonewall used to preach tolerance. Now we preach acceptance. We've kind of moved forward. And you know, I think anyone, you know, of faith who's listening, you know, you are loved, you are valued, you are great as you are, and you can reconcile those things. You should not feel like you have to choose between who you are um, uh, and, and parts of your identity and your faith. They, they can absolutely 100% be reconciled. So I would encourage people to go out and look for, there are great books, there are great materials, there are great people out there like Reverend McCauley, and there are leaders out there who you can look up to and who you can learn from. But I think, you know, it's so important that people get that message. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely hope that that message is reaching whoever needs to hear it and whatever action they need to take. I think the comment on mental health is especially important, particularly given lockdown. It's been harder, I think, for people to reach communities which they could have physically seen. And I think promoting Interlaw is definitely a positive thing to do because that's an online space as well as, you know, people who are actually working behind it. So hopefully people definitely see and learn from that now and my final sort of question also targeted for listeners and students looking at the legal industry so for students wanting to apply to firms who have a diverse and inclusive culture do you have any advice for them in recognizing firms which have substantial rather than superficial commitments to diversity and inclusion in, in particular to the lgbtq plus sort of inclusivity and commun community yeah i have to say that's a really hard one right now because at this point, everyone's kind of, um, everyone's talking the talk. Um, and if you look at people's websites, you know, everyone has almost the same language with the same stock photos and everyone's amazing and everybody's inclusive and everyone's a champion and everyone's a leader. I think the really important thing to do is research those firms. I think there's not an easy way to do that. I think you have to talk to people. You have to see where there are visible role models. And you know, it's this is the same if you want to know what's going on inside your own organization. If you want to know what LGBT plus people think, ask them. If you want to know what women think, 
ask them. So it's really, really important that people kind of look at, and I said, as I said, the numbers speak for themselves. If you research a firm that says they're LGBT plus inclusive, but they've got, you know, a thousand people in London and one of them is LGBT plus in the partnership, that's a signal that things probably aren't what they could be, right? It's definitely a challenge for firms to retain diverse talent. Because if you look at our research, you know, the best experiences people have are in-house jobs. The next best is government legal. And the third best, also known as the worst or most challenging, are law firms. And the bigger law firms are more challenging for diverse people than kind of medium and small, but, you know, with obviously all with exceptions. But I think it's really important to look for the numbers, you know, ask, write to the firms and say, I'd like to talk to people in the LGBT plus network. Can you put me in touch, not just with junior people, but also with senior people um, and, you know, and, and do that due diligence because they're not all exactly the same. They are different. But I think from the outside, there's a lot of polish and there's a lot of talk. Um, but some people I think are, are making strides and, and getting better. Um, and other people I think, you know, are, are just doing lip service um, in the DNI space. And that's not just true about LGBT plus. I would say exactly the same thing about race ethnicity. Exactly, you know, you look now and, you know, everyone's, you know, everyone put out a statement supporting Black Lives Matter. Everyone's like, we've got a plan. And, you know, the question is, are these plans actually about developing and promoting um, black talent or are these plans, you know, we're buying books on Amazon, we're streaming things on Netflix, we're doing pro bono work, we're writing checks to charities, all of which I applaud, but the real work for DNI for an organization is what you do inside your four walls. These days, those four walls may be virtual, um, but you need to be looking and seeing, is there a commitment beyond the external stuff that's very visible, what are people doing? And when you meet people who are diverse from these firms, ask them, are they receiving training? And are they receiving support? Are they, are they being mentored or sponsored to make sure they're getting to their next levels? Um, so look at the career progression report because that highlights really well where things go right and where things can go wrong. And that will give you a roadmap to the kinds of things you should be asking people about to test the culture and see what it looks like. Yeah, thank you a lot. That's a lot of really practical advice as well, which I think is often really absent. So that's all been really helpful. That's pretty much it in terms of my questions, but it's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you today, Daniel. No, it's been great talking to, um, to both of you, Irini and Mohini, and you guys have asked great questions. I've really, really enjoyed our conversation, and I'm really honored you guys asked me to come and speak. And as I said, I always appreciate being given the opportunity to share. I think it's important that we celebrate across the whole community. I'm um, happy that I'm able to do my part, but I think we all have a role to play. Um, and as I said, within the Angela Diversity Forum, the great thing is our ability to kind of platform other people. Um, you know, we've really thrived in lockdown um, because we knew how important our work was. So we actually ramped up events last year. We did more events than ever before. We put together our virtual internship. Um, so we had 900 and plus applications, 450 students and recent graduates attended it. You know, we did 20, I think 26 sessions over five days with over 60 members of faculty from everywhere from the House of Lords and Parliament down to um, you know, major corporations, financial institutions, and law firms, and chambers as well. Um, we, we had judges. It was great. Government. Mm -hmm. So um, it's important, the work that we're doing within Interlaw. And I think what's great, too, is there's a great resource. If you go to our annual report from last year um, that's up on the website under publications, it's filled with hyperlinks to videos, to events, to podcasts. So you know, I encourage anyone who wants more, who's feeling 
isolated or struggling right now, there are a huge number of role models and people that you can connect with virtually. It's all free. It's all open to everyone. Um, and, you know, they're great, great, great people. So if you're feeling um, like you want to pick me up and you want to get inspired, you can go in and, you know, and I encourage you if you're um, from a, you know, a race ethnicity background and not LGBT plus, dive into the LGBT plus programming. And there's lots of intersectional program where we look at race and LGBT plus together. Um, so I encourage you know, to look and explore those other areas and think about where we can be allies. And you know, I think right now in, in our community, it's important to support trans and non-binary people who are definitely under fire. But remember too, it's very challenging for the bisexual community right now. I think they get um, they feel very isolated as well, um, and they feel much less visible and much less supported. While there's a lot of anti-trans and non-binary stuff that we all need to combat and speak up for, we need to also speak up for the bi community, as well as just continuing to support, you know, lesbian and gay identities, because it ain't easy being any of those things, you know. And as we said, the more intersectionality you build on top, the more challenging life can become. And then you drop the pandemic and lockdown three and all of that on top. We have a lot of work to do to support and help each other. So I also would encourage you, if you're feeling alone or isolated, reach out to help someone else because you'll help yourself while you do that. So I think everyone can think about how they can be of service. That's, I think, the most important message I'd like to leave with is, you know, if you look at the work I do, I've helped others, but every great thing that's happened to me since I started doing that has come out of that work. So people say, how do I get a mentor? How do I get a sponsor? You know, amazing people like Baroness Scotland, who's now Secretary General of the Commonwealth. You know, I met her on the dance floor at a Stonewall event. She knew of my work and said, I wanna know you, I wanna support you. I've had women like Dame Fiona Wolf step forward, you know, the second woman to be um, Lord Mayor of the City of London, the second woman to be president of the Law Society. She stepped forward, um, Tim Hales, who's, um, an alderman in the city of London, um, the first openly gay sheriff, maybe the first openly gay Lord Mayor soon. Um, and um, uh, we've had Sandy Okoro and Helen Grant MP. And if you look at that group, those are my patrons now. They've all stepped forward and met me along the way saying, I admire your work. I wanna support your work. This is important. They've become friends, they've become allies. I wouldn't be able to do any of those things. Four of those people are allies. They are not part of the LGBT plus community. Three of those, four of those people are women. Three of them are black women um, and they're all amazing. So I just say my life has become richer when you know no one should be doing what I'm doing, like I'm me, but everyone should figure out their path and their way to help people. I'm not saying everyone needs to go out and launch an organization, but you know, just taking a, taking a colleague out for coffee, thinking about who might need a little bit of support, thinking if you're a recent graduate about reaching back to supporting students at BPP. Everyone has a role to play and everyone can learn. And when you do that, you become a better person. You become a better future manager and a better future leader. And it's never too early to start giving back. And I think on that point, we can wrap up. Um, I personally found this episode very insightful. Uh, and I think it, it, it's all, it also serves as a reminder that each person is diverse and unique in their own way. Um, and it kind of reaffirmed that the most important message of DNI is to actually celebrate everyone for their own individuality and intersectionality. Um, and also, as you said, Daniel, uh, everyone should be loved and valued for their own uniqueness. And I think that's the most important message. So thank you for joining us.